This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today, I want to return to a topic that I spoke about a few weeks ago, God's character and his promises. And I'm sure that I'll have more of these in the future as well, because it's so important that we turn our eyes off of ourselves and on to him. Today, it seems to me that there's so much teaching in the church about how God meets our needs and how he provides for us and what he does for us. And we really need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto him. It's so important that we understand who he is and that we know him, not just understand who he is from a distance, but we know him by how he communicates to us and how we have fellowship with him, that we really know him. I've exchanged emails with a few people in the last several months who question their ability to hear the voice of God or know his will really specifically for their lives. And I want to say again, I believe I said this the first time I addressed this topic, our faith should not be in our ability to understand or even do the will of God because we're going to fail. If you think you're not able to hear from the Lord, then you may be putting your faith in yourself. Of course, you're weak. Of course, I am too. We all are. We all fall short of the glory of God. We should not put our faith in our abilities. Our faith should be in God, in his character, and in his promises. His character and his promises, they don't change. Like humans do, we change. But his character and his promises don't change. They are eternal and they're dependable. We need to put our faith in him. There have been several times in my life where I was praying very seriously about something and I began to wonder if I would have wisdom about it. And then the Lord reminded me that my faith was at that point in my weakness instead of in his ability to break through the fog that I felt that I was in. God knows you well enough to know how to communicate with you clearly in real time. He knows how to speak to you. So instead of us focusing inward on ourselves and our weaknesses, let's focus out of ourselves, away from ourselves and onto him and wait patiently on him. He knows how to speak. He knows how to make himself known. And of course, he's been doing that for thousands of years. Ever since the beginning of creation, he makes himself known in various ways. And we here, where we are at this time in the history of the world and God's dealings with human beings, we are super blessed because we have received the things that so many people before longed to see. We have that revelation now through Jesus, through the scriptures, the New Testament writings. He has given us so much. We just need to turn away from ourselves and on to him and how he reveals himself. So I'll talk about character, God's character, and then a little bit later talk about promises. And I'll just cover a few things today. There's so much that can be said, and of course I'll just be skipping along, but hopefully it'll be helpful. But first of all, that question comes to mind, what is character? Character is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. Character is the thing that defines a moral personality. 
So what defines God's character? How do we know his character? Well, it doesn't matter what we think about God. It doesn't matter what I think about God or what I think about who he is or what he is like. My goodness, through the ages, many people have expressed their thoughts about how God ought to be according to their reasoning. As a matter of fact, I was just reading about Thomas Jefferson and how he created his own gospel. He took a couple of copies of the New Testament and cut out the parts that he didn't agree with and then pasted the rest of it together because he thought that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he removed all of the miracles, all of the miraculous. He cut out everything that was divine, actually. He removed because that was his idea of how God ought to be. Religions have been created because humans layered their ideas onto the God that they worship. Uh, People have made statues and worshiped them. I mentioned before pygmies who would worship an anthill in the forest because of their ideas of what God is like. But we have to look at how does God reveal himself? What does he say about himself? What does the scripture reveal about the character of God? What are the promises that we find in the Bible, regardless of how we feel about it or how we think about it? What do we find in the scriptures? How does he reveal himself? We need to have ears to hear what he says about himself. Spiritual ears to hear what he says about himself. Well, last time I spoke about three characteristics of God, three parts of his character that have been very, very meaningful to me. You can go back and listen to that talk if you want to review it or if you haven't heard it. The first that I mentioned was that God brings order from chaos. He loves to bring order from chaos. The second thing I mentioned was that God is a redeemer. He loves to restore the honor and the reputation or to recover ownership of people and situations. He loves to redeem that which is lost. He loves to redeem that which has been taken into slavery. The third thing I mentioned is that God brings life from death, and he brings to life things that are completely dead, like totally, completely dead. That's part of the character of God. He loves to do that. He loves to bring life from death, and we can really put our trust in him in that part of his character. So today I want to mention his faithfulness, that God is faithful. And I'll start by reading from Revelations chapter 19. And this starts in verse 11 and moves forward through, I think, verse 16. And here it is. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice He judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a great section there. Boy, this revelation of Jesus when he's coming in his glory. 
imagine John, who knew Jesus as a carpenter and as a a man who walked on the earth dressed simply and living very simply, and now he sees Jesus coming, boy, in his glory. These are the names of Jesus. I probably will do a future episode about the names of Jesus because there are a lot of names of Jesus mentioned in the scripture. But just here we see three of his names. The writer's name is Faithful and True. That's what the writer is called, Faithful and True. It mentions that his name is the Word of God, and he has his name written on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see that one of his names is Faithful and True. What does it mean to be faithful? It means to be constant and steadfast, true to the facts, true to one's word and promises and vows. To be faithful is to be steady in allegiance, reliable, trustworthy, loyal. God is all of those things, and that's all wrapped up in this word faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful and true. And what does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means that everything that God has promised will come to pass. His faithfulness guarantees that. He does not lie because he is faithful. What he has said in the Bible about himself is true because he is faithful. Our hope of eternal life rests on God's faithfulness. It doesn't rest on our ability to understand it. Our hope rests on him and his faithfulness. He will honor his promise that our sins will be forgiven and that we will live forever with him. I didn't make those things up. God says this about himself. He is faithful and true. This brings to mind 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, This is my gospel for which I am suffering to the point of being chained like an animal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Boy, that's a revelation of the faithfulness of God. It says here, if we endure, we'll reign with him, but if we disown him, he'll disown us. And you'd almost think that the next thing would be, if we are faithless, then he'll be faithless. But no, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. He has integrity. He is one. He's not divided against himself. That is the faithfulness of God, and we can stand on that. We can stand on his promises because of his faithfulness. Now I want to look at something that, boy, there's so much that can be said about it, and I'm going to dip my toe in the water here a little bit as I talk about love the character of God that he is loving. And please bear with me, and I hope you'll understand where I'm coming from when I say what I'm about to say. In the modern church, I fear and I think that there is often an overemphasis on the love of God. 
<laughs> I don't know how that'll go down with people who are listening, but please hear me out. The scriptures don't really mention God's love nearly as often as it is mentioned in modern church meetings and in Christian books and Christian worship songs. It's mentioned so very often, but in the scriptures, it's really not mentioned that often or as often. And I think that's because, or it may be because, of the self-love that's baked into our modern culture. And that self-love is, it's a poison. And it's one that infects the world and it gets into the church. So there can be a lot of focus on God's love for us to make us feel lovable. People like to wrap themselves in self-love. That is one of the traps or the snares that's in Western culture. I don't think it's always been that way. And I certainly visit other cultures where self-love is not emphasized nearly as much. I'll say more about this later when I talk about the kindness and severity of God, which is found in the book of Romans, that God is very kind and loving, but he's also pretty severe. And often in our culture these days, we don't hear about the severity of God. But that's also part of the character of God. He's pretty tough. But for now, I'll just say that it's my opinion that the modern church often overemphasizes how God loves us because this hedonism that's in the world has crept into the church. It's interesting, the love of God is not mentioned very often in the Old Testament. It's there, but rarely in the Old Testament. And of course, in the book of John, it's mentioned quite a bit, and in the epistles. But now I look this up. You guys can check me on this for sure. But the love of God is not mentioned at all in the book of Acts. And I did a search for the word love, and I didn't find that in the book of Acts at all, even the word love. But you can check me on that. Isn't that something? In the book of Acts, that's how we see how the early church engaged in evangelism, how the early believers communicated the character of God to unbelievers. And the love of God isn't mentioned in the book of Acts. Isn't that something? I'm preparing a talk about the place of love in evangelism, and it's going to push off of this, that the way the early church engaged in evangelism is very different from what people call evangelism nowadays, at least some portions of the church in the West. Honestly, in the book of Acts, they didn't say God loves you and God has a plan for your life. That's not how evangelism was done in the early church. So we need to think about that. I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes here because I'm here to talk about the love of God as one of his characteristics. It's an integral part of his character of who God is because God is love. So we'll start in 1 John chapter 4. Of course, John talks about love so much and um, the message of God's love is almost always given to believers. And that's why it's there so often is because as followers of Jesus, we really have to abide in his love and understand his love and his character of love. But we also need to understand what God means by love as opposed to what the world means by love. So in 1 John chapter 4, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's wonderful. It's really beautiful. First of all, I'll point out that love comes from God. He is the source of love. He aims his love towards us. He radiates his love towards us. Love comes from him. And he aims his love toward us. And we are members of a broken and filthy and disobedient world. When we're not lovable or pleasant to be around, he loves us. Regardless of how we are, he loves us. He loves the sinners in the world. He loves the people that are doing the horrible things. That's why Christ came and died and paid that price, became an atoning sacrifice. Because sin does have a price. God does not forgive sin unless it's been paid for. I think I've told this story before. I'll tell it again here. We have interns that work with our ministry from time to time. And several summers ago, I was driving with interns through Europe, and we stopped at Auschwitz in Poland. Auschwitz, if you don't know, was a death camp that the Nazis set up in World War II. And I think about a million people were murdered there, many of them within maybe 20 minutes or an hour of arriving, getting off the train. It's a horrible place. I mean, it's just terrible, the things that happened there. And I was there with our interns, a couple of interns, and one of them said, Jesus paid for this. And it had never really struck me how Jesus paid for the sins of those Nazis. Jesus loved the Nazis so much that he paid the price for that sin. If any one of them would put their faith in him, their sins were paid for. Jesus took on himself that price. God aims his love toward us. And therefore, what John is saying, we should aim our love towards God and towards others. That's what I get out of this section of the scripture here. Love comes from God. He gives it to us, and we should aim our love away from ourselves, just as God does, towards God and towards others. And I'll talk in a minute about how our love is expressed towards God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, one of the few references to the love of God in the Old Testament, it's also pretty enlightening here. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's one of those few Old Testament references to the love of God And it's interesting, it says he didn't help the nation of Israel. He didn't set his love on them or choose them because they were a great nation or wonderful people because they were the least of all people. 
but it's just because of his love and because he had made a promise. And he is faithful, and he's going to keep that promise. And that's why he showered his love down on the nation of Israel. Well, next I'll look at John chapter 14. And I'll read an extended section because it's bookended, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak to you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Well, here we see the integrity of Jesus. He says that love is expressed in obedience. He says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And he shows his love by obedience to the Father. This last verse that I just read, he says, the world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. If we want to see an example of love in action, take a look at Jesus. He only did what the Father showed him to do. This is what love is. God is love, and Jesus shows us what it is to be loving, and what is it? The world must learn that he loves the Father and that he does exactly what the Father has commanded him. That is love. Obedience, submission, surrendering our own will to the Father. Love is aimed away from the self and towards God and towards our fellow man. That's the way God wants his love to flow. God's love is aimed towards us. He has our best in mind, not his own good, but our good. And therefore, we can benefit and receive and rest in that love, but we also need to aim that love away from ourselves, not let it rest on us only, but be expressions of God's love. And that love is towards God as we surrender ourselves to him and his will and are obedient to him. Let him be the head and not ourselves. Let him make the decisions, not ourselves. And our love can be aimed towards our fellow man to lay aside our own good for the good of others. Romans chapter 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. It comes from God. God is the genesis of love. He is its source, and it is by him and his spirit that we experience love. God loves his people. Those are the people that he's going to take with himself into eternal glory. God holds the well-being of others 
as his primary concern. That's what love is, to hold the well-being of others as our primary concern, to do things that please God by his strength, by his spirit, and to consider the well-being of others around us more than our own well-being. As I said, to see love in action, we just need to study the life of Jesus. He took time to teach the truth because people need to be enlightened. He gave his time, his life force, the few hours that he had walking the earth, he gave it to teaching people. He confronted hypocrisy because people need purity. They need to see examples of integrity. He loved people so much that he confronted that hypocrisy. Of course, he healed those who were suffering because people need relief. And his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of others was that ultimate act of love. He put himself aside and paid the price for what others had done. Not for his own sin, because he didn't have any sin, but he paid the price for your sin and for my sin. It's real important that we remember or realize that God's love is not a love of emotion, but of action. Agape love, that highest love, is not a love of emotion. I've said it many times, but it's good to remember. Agape love can be commanded, and if you command love, then it can't be of the emotion. It's got to be of the will. Agape love is to see a need and take action to meet that need. God's love is not a love of emotion. It's a love of action. And God is love, and God is active. We're all pretty familiar, I'm sure, with 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not boast. But since God is love, let me just put the word God in to talk about the character of God. God is patient. God is kind. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So God is love. We really need to think about what that means when we say it. It doesn't really mean what I think a lot of people take it to mean. God is love. Oh, he, he's like a big teddy bear that we can hug and we can sit in his lap and be comforted by him. Uh, some of that is true, of course, but it's so much more than that. God is active and selfless, and he calls us to have that same love flowing out of us, to share in that part of his character. So to me, it's a call to action when I say God is love. It's like, yeah, that's right. Let's start letting that love flow. Let's not just be recipients of that love. Let's be the people who put it into practice, and we're the body of Christ on this earth acting in love, which is obedience to the Father and considering the needs of others. Okay, well, that's enough about God's character right now. Um, later on, I'll talk about his justice, his mercy, and his grace, and how he is holy and omnipotent and eternal and omnipresent. But let's take a look at God's promises, a couple of them here. The first thing I want to say about God's promises are that they have power. And I'll read again what I started with last time, Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life 
through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, which is referencing the previous sentence, through his glory and his goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world that is caused by evil desires. Boy, that's really amazing, isn't it? From his own character, his own divine power, he has given us promises. And those promises are great and they are precious. God's promises are not just good suggestions. (laughs) They are precious and very great. And through these promises, we can participate in the divine nature. Isn't that something? Through the promises of God, we can participate in his character. And through his promises, we can escape the corruption that is in the world. Amen. So it's good for us to know his promises and stand on them. Uh, Last time I talked about God's promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Before I talk about these next ones, I want to just say that God's promises often have conditions. God does not promise everything to every person. There are very often conditions for us to receive his promises or walk in his revelation of himself. A very familiar one is Romans chapter 8, 28, and I think it's pretty often misapplied, just like John three sixteen is very often misapplied. And if you don't know what I mean, I encourage you to go back and listen to a previous episode about John three sixteen. John 3.16 is probably one of the least understood scriptures in the Bible and most often misapplied. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 also is misapplied often. And here it is. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Often people will say, in all things, God works for good. And there's this kind of an idea, I don't know, it's... um. It's kind of an idea of karma or something that for every person on the face of the earth, God is always working things out for their good. But that's not really what this is saying. Say, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose. So it is a promise of God, but I often think, well, what is my part of that? Well, I need to love God. And that means obedience and self-sacrifice, and surrender of myself. And also, I need to understand his calling, how he is calling me according to his purpose. And If you and I are loving him and walking in his purposes for our lives, not my purpose for my life, but his purpose for my life, if we're doing that, then everything's going to work out for good. It may be really, really hard. And of course, we see that in the scriptures, that people who loved him and were walking according to his call and his purposes, many of those people suffered horribly on this earth. But for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, and we often have a similar path. There is great joy ahead, great good ahead, but we have to bear that cross. We have to endure whatever cross the Lord lays on us. That's his way. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes another promise, and here again, like I've said, I think before, I'm thinking about doing a sermon called The Ifs of Jesus, and here's one, and I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again here in case people haven't heard. It's always good to be reminded. 
to the Jews who had believed him, isn't that interesting? It's to the Jews who really believed him. Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I've said this is also a very misunderstood scripture. A lot of people in the world don't even know that it came from the mouth of Jesus, and they will only quote the very last part, the truth will set you free. Well, that sentence is actually, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But what goes before the word then? If you hold to my teaching, then you'll know the truth. That's a promise. That is a promise for you. If you hold to the teachings of Jesus, if you put into practice in your life what he teaches, then you really are a disciple. That's what a disciple is. And then, in the living out of his teaching, you'll know the truth. And that truth is going to break bonds. All the bondage of the world and the bondage of sin, it'll get broken as we hold to his teaching and walk as disciples. Uh, Let me say it another way. If a person does not hold to the teachings of Jesus, he is not a disciple. And that person will continue in bondage and is headed for destruction. That's one of these conditions of the promise of God. So what do we get from that? We really need to hold to his teachings. We really do need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and walk with him. Anything less, and we remain in bondage. Well, here's a great one. In James chapter 1, this will be familiar to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Boy, there is so much that can be said about that promise. There is a condition. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, of course, I think we all lack wisdom. Well, here's the condition. We need to ask God. We need to really ask God for wisdom and listen. And God gives generously to everyone without finding fault. That's a beautiful promise. He is faithful and he's true to his word. And the Bible says, if you need wisdom, ask God. And if you're aware of your faults as you're asking him and say, I don't know why he would give me wisdom. I'm such a mess. Well, here it says he gives generously without finding fault. God is not going to say, well, you've asked for wisdom and I have it, but you're really just not up to snuff here. No. God's promise is that he gives generously without finding fault and it will be given to you. Well, let me go and read a little bit more of this because it's such a good scripture. So in James, continuing on, well, I'll start in verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Another way to say this, verse 8, instead of saying he's double-minded, he say a man doesn't have integrity. He's not unified within himself. I think this loops all the way back to how I started this talk, that our faith is not in ourselves or in our ability to hear or discern. Our faith is in God, in his character, and in his promises. And James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and God will give with generosity 
and he's not going to find a fault with you. And when you ask, believe and do not doubt. How can it be that we don't doubt? Well, if you put your faith in yourself, if I put my faith in myself, well, then I'm going to doubt. But if I put my faith in God and his promises and his character, then that's something solid to stand on. And because of that, we need not doubt. Matter of fact, if we do doubt, then we're like a wave of the sea. We're infirm. We're blown and tossed by the wind. And really, we shouldn't expect to receive anything because even if God did give us wisdom or revelation, we'd be so unsure. He'd say, well, was that God or was that not God? No, we've got to put our faith in him, not in ourselves, not in our own ability to hear. And the way that I often talk about this when I'm communicating these things with people as we meet, if you need wisdom, and if you've asked God and you're not doubting, but you haven't received an answer, then that means you don't need the answer at that moment. God will give you what you need when you need it. And I've, boy, I'm, I've learned this lesson from experience. There have been a lot of times where I really have been praying, God, give me wisdom. I need to understand the situation. And I just don't get clarity. I'm waiting for clarity. But that means I don't need it at that moment. God will give me what I need when I need it. That's how I can go into these situations and not doubt. If I still lack clarity, but I've asked for wisdom, and I still don't have it, then that means I just don't need it at that moment. I'm going to rest in him and in his promises. He will give you what you need when you need it. Well, just in closing, my friends, I, I want to say again, our faith should not be in our weakness or in our ability or inability to hear well. Our faith is in Him, in His strength, in His character, and in His promises. So until next time, my friends, I do pray that you will receive more and more from God, that you will stand firm based on His character and His promises, and that He will reveal to you His way and His word, because His ways are always good and they always lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Amen.